to the news magazine on the America Out Loud Network. I'm Alana Friedman, and this is The Friedman Report. Welcome to the show, my friends. It just keeps getting more interesting every day and crazier and crazier. Sometimes you have to wonder where people leave their brains when they start to speak. The Super Bowl, Tampa Bay won big time, 31-9. The quarterback, Tom Brady, got credit for the win, and he was named the most valuable player, MVP. So he got slammed on social media for being the winner during Black History Month. Brady's a white guy. And it seems that the woke crowd thinks that for a white guy to win the biggest football game of the year is racist. And so they called him a racist. Are they kidding? You can't make this stuff up. Football is a game, folks, and people really take the Super Bowl seriously. It's not, or shouldn't be, a political statement or a social justice issue either. It isn't, or shouldn't be, about race. It's a game. And there is another piece of woke news. The restaurant that's called Cracker Barrel is also racist because of the name Cracker. One person wrote that she can walk into a place and just feel the racism there. Well, the word Cracker in Southern slang refers to a rural, poor, white Southerner as in Georgia Cracker. It has very little to do with racism and nothing to do with blacks. But black people are now using it to refer to a southern white racist. And most recently, it doesn't have to refer to a southerner at all. Woke politics are changing the way we use words. This isn't a new phenomenon, but it's getting worse every day. It started quite a long time ago, actually, One of the first words that I remember being changed like that was the word gay, which used to mean happy or lighthearted. But at some point, it came to mean homosexual. And that original definition just couldn't be used anymore. And by the way, the name Cracker Barrel has nothing to do with poor white folks from Georgia. In the old days, in the days of the general store, long gone, There was usually a barrel full of crackers, saltines, crunchy, salty crackers, and the name Cracker Barrel refers to that and brings back memories of a much simpler time. Sometimes people just don't make sense. Social justice just isn't fair. But you knew that, right? So let's talk about that for a minute. What is racism? For one thing, it's not limited to black people or people of color. Sometimes it's not limited to race at all. Jews, for example, many of whom have fair skin and blonde hair, have been the victims of violent prejudice not for hundreds of years, but for thousands of years in virtually every place they lived. And it continues today in Europe, in the Middle East, and here in the United States. Some people would call that racism. But it's not really, because Jews are not a race. Judaism is a religion. But Jews have been slaves, and they've surely experienced the worst kind of prejudice through the years, including the cold-blooded murder of six million Jews in Europe less than 80 years ago. You'd think that in the woke world, that would give Jews some standing. 
as a similarly oppressed people. But nope. The woke people indulge in anti-Semitism on a daily basis. Go figure. Now, BLM and other allied groups who claim to represent people of color are demanding entitlement for the injustices that white people inflicted on them or their ancestors over a hundred years ago. Slavery, it was horrible, despicable. And in today's world, in democracies at least, there is no excuse for it and no exceptions should ever be made for the practice of one person owning another. It's just plain evil. But it is still practiced today in China, in some Muslim countries, in Africa. And that is being largely ignored by the woke movement. The people who lead Black Lives Matter want everyone who made the mistake of being born white to pay for it now. And they feel entitled to it, to the benefit of criminalizing white people. Although there is no black person alive who was enslaved before the emancipation in 1864, and no white person who was ever a slave owner is alive today either. The idea that living Americans of any race should pay for or receive reparations for what we consider crimes today, but weren't crimes at the time, events that took place centuries ago. That's absurd. And what is even more absurd is this, that many of the very people who are demanding reparations are the products of the American dream. They're in a good place. They make their demands from the halls of Congress or from pricey universities where they live the good life that the American dream provided for them. But they feel like they are victims, and they act like they're victims, even in their pricey university dorm rooms. And here's another thing, and I talked about this a little bit on the show last week, that the people who are protesting the loudest, showing their hatred of white people and demanding reparations, are also demanding the right to segregate themselves with other people who look like them in so-called safe spaces. And they're helping to destroy the work of their parents and grandparents who risked their lives to desegregate America during the civil rights movement of the 1960s. And it's also interesting that in the colleges and universities that they attend, they're not learning about history as it happened, but history as it's being rewritten, reconstructed, and reshaped to teach a socially conscious lesson to white Americans. There's a project that was initiated by the New York Times Magazine, and it's called the 1619 Project, and it's all about identity politics. It suggests that America was not born in 1776, when the new government was formed in Philadelphia, but in the summer of 1619, when the first black slaves were brought to Point Comfort, Virginia, on the ship White Lion. That is what they are teaching in our schools and universities that our history is all about race and all about historical revisionism and identity politics. This whole concept, the 1619 Project, was developed by Nicole Hannah-Jones and writers from the New York Times and the New York Times Magazine. The project proclaims its goals very clearly. It says, quote, the goal of the 1619 Project is to reframe American history by considering what it would mean to regard 1619 as our nation's birth year. 
Doing so requires us to place the consequences of slavery and the contributions of black Americans at the very center of the story we tell ourselves about who we are as a country. What if, it goes on to say, what if the country's true birth date, the moment that its defining contradictions first came into the world, was in late August of 1619? Though the exact date has been lost to history, that was when the ship arrived at Port Comfort in the British colony of Virginia, bearing a cargo of 20 to 30 captured and enslaved Africans. Their arrival inaugurated a barbaric system of chattel slavery that would last for the next 250 years. This is sometimes referred to as the country's original sin, but it is more than that. It's the country's very origin, unquote. In support of her 1619 project, she wrote a letter to the editor in Notre Dame's The Observer, in which she said, quote, The white race is the biggest murderer, rapist, pillager, and thief of the modern world, unquote. Hannah Jones received a Pulitzer Prize for her work on the 1619 project, even though it was full of racist tropes. There's an interesting note on the 1619.org website regarding the New York Times Magazine article. It says, quote, In August, the New York Times produced a magazine and podcast on their views on 1619 and its afterlife. Project 1619 Incorporated was not consulted or involved in their production. Project 1619 Inc. does not support or endorse their opinions, unquote. You know, there is a deep divide between those who support the 1619 Project and those who don't. And one of the interesting and disturbing aspects of all this is it is almost impossible to discuss these differences with proponents of the 1619 Project if you have any measure of disagreement with it. Dr. Roger Ray wrote a detailed article about this called 1619 Project versus 1776 Commission, and in it, he was very clear about which side he was on. He opened his article with this statement, quote, Springfield, Missouri made a brief appearance on Fox News Flash on January 21st with what I think was meant to be a shocking headline, but what should be common knowledge by now, quote, Missouri Diversity Session tells teachers colorblindness, all lives matter, are forms of white supremacy, unquote. Should be common knowledge by now, he said. Huh, really? My father used to say, when he couldn't think of a good enough argument to make his point, he would say, quote, all right-thinking people believe that, and then he would tell us his opinion. He was wrong, of course, because there is no such thing as right-thinking people. There is opinion. And we all have ours, and they may not agree with yours. But that doesn't make you right and me wrong, or the other way around. I disagree vehemently with Dr. Ray that saying all lives matter makes me a white supremacist. And as we get deeper into this discussion, we approach a critical juncture with something called critical race theory. Now, the big story of the week is clearly the impeachment trial of former President Donald Trump. And it already looks like it's going to be 
another farce, just like the first one. The lies from the Democrats have begun, and it looks like there is no hope in sight for the truth to be heard from any of them. I'm going to be talking about this right after the break, which is coming up right now. Critical race theory essentially defines America as a country whose entire history is based on the enslavement of black people. It claims that all American institutions, laws, and history were designed to oppress black people and are therefore inherently racist. It promotes the idea that these institutions have set up barriers, social, economic, legal, in order to maintain the elite status of white people and to keep people of color depressed, both economically and politically. The very source of the poverty and criminal behavior that exists in the minority communities, they say, is because of these barriers and these barriers alone. This theory, and that's all it is, a theory, because there is no empirical proof that any of this is based on science or legitimate research. This theory and the history that it claims to base this theory on is fundamentally flawed. And yet it is now being taught at more than 200 colleges where students learn, as though it is fact, which it isn't, that all the benefits of their own life, like the free market and the criminal justice system and the electoral college, for example, were created specifically to oppress them. They fail to mention that the free market, for example, enabled their parents to provide them with the comfortable lives and their college education that they are enjoying even while they complain and demonstrate against the unfairness of their lives. Angela Anwachi Willig is an expert on critical race theory at Boston University School of Law. In an interview with the Boston Globe, she said this, racism is not extraordinary. Race and racism are basically baked into everything we do in our society. It's embedded in our institutions. It's embedded in our minds and hearts." Unquote. So critical race theory is being employed as a weapon against white Americans to punish us for the sins, real or imagined, committed by people who are being judged solely on one criterion, the color of their skin. This is exactly opposite from what we have been taught from the cradle, that living in America guarantees us, all of us, all those rights indelibly engraved in the hearts of Americans and committed to parchment by brave men who risk their lives in doing so. That all men are created equal that they are endowed by their creator with certain inalienable rights and that among these rights are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Now, I would be dishonest or just plain foolish if I said that these brave words were always applied fairly and honestly and ignored the fact that people of color just have a more difficult time making it in this country. They do. And there are many reasons for that, not just one. And it is also true that in the South particularly, 
the laws of Jim Crow were created for the exact reason of keeping Southern blacks from accessing these guarantees. But painting all white people with that very broad brush is just as bad as painting all people of color that way. And those who accept critical race theory as a valid expression of history are doing just that. Now, this is a big and really important story, and it's not going away. We need to talk about it. And I have a few more things I want to share with you about critical race theory and the 1619 Project. And I also want to get on to the big story of the week, the impeachment trial of Donald Trump in the U.S. Senate that is taking place right now. So right after the break, we're going to dig right into it. Stay right there. I'll be right back. Hello, this is Lieutenant Randy Sutton, the host of Blue Lives Radio, the voice of American law enforcement. I am a 34-year police veteran. I am also the founder and CEO of an organization that stands behind injured and disabled law enforcement officers. It is called The Wounded Blue. Our website is thewoundedblue.org. We have produced a film. It is an important film. I urge you to watch it. The film details what happens when a police officer or law enforcement officer is shot or stabbed or beaten or disabled, seriously injured in the line of duty. Most people think they are taken care of medically and financially. The reality may be quite different. It is called The Wounded Blue, Service, Sacrifice, Betrayed. The film is available on Amazon, iTunes, and the Microsoft Store. Hail my fellow Americans, how did you feel watching footage on the news of domestic terrorists looting our stores and burning our cities down? Uh, you were probably disgusted and angry as much as I was. It's disturbing what's going on. Well, you'd be shocked to know that your shopping habits are supporting these extremists. Companies like Amazon, Nike, Disney, FedEx, it's an endless list. And they've been supporting these radical groups. Let's stop supporting companies that fund these extremist groups. We can all do our part. Visit shoptotheright.com and you'll find businesses in a nationwide database and companies that are aligned with our American values. Visit shoptotheright.com and let's all make a difference. Critical race theory and the 1619 Project want us to believe that the real founding of America happened in 1619, not 1776, because in 1619, the first African slaves reached America. In August of that year, 1619, a ship landed at Point Comfort in what is now Hampton, Virginia, and it carried the first captured and enslaved Africans who were brought to North America. And the 1619 Project maintains that this event was the gateway, in their own words, quote, to 246 years of bondage, 100 years of Jim Crow, segregation, denial of civil rights, unfair housing, redlining, lack of equal education, unfair employment practices, police profiling, and unfair incarceration policies. And that's largely true. 
You know, the 1619 Project was published nearly 400 years after this event, the arrival of this ship. So the project posed the question to its readers. It said, what would it mean to consider 1619 as our nation's birth year? Unquote. But the 1619 Project skews history. It romanticizes and enlarges the contributions of black Americans to the country, and it minimizes and belittles the contributions of white Americans. It looks at America's most sacred institutions and values and calls them racist and blames the failure of black Americans to succeed on the racism of these institutions. So through this project, the idea is to restructure American history so as to give greater value to the contribution of black Americans and minimize the contribution of white Americans, blaming them instead for the failure of the black American community to succeed at the same level of their white compatriots. So for the creators of this new history of America, 1619 becomes the logical date for the founding of this country. It's all viewed through the prism of the black experience. But consider this. In the very next year, 1620, 120 men, women, and children landed at Plymouth Rock. We call them pilgrims, and they were led by John Winthrop, a man who became their first governor. He guided them with words intended to help them adjust to the harsh life of New England. It was he who said, quote, You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. Centuries later, Ronald Reagan used those very same words in his farewell speech to the country, and it's become something of a mantra to people who still remember Ronald Reagan with a great deal of fondness and respect. He used them to describe the country that America had become. He said, I've thought a bit about the shining city on the hill. The phrase comes from John Winthrop, who wrote it to describe the America he imagined. What he imagined was important because he was an early pilgrim, an early freedom man. He journeyed here on what today we'd call a little wooden boat. And like the other pilgrims, he was looking for a home that would be free. I've spoken of the shining city on a hill all my political life, but I don't know if I ever quite communicated what I saw when I said it. But in my mind, it was a tall city built on rocks stronger than oceans, windswept, God-blessed, and teeming with people of all kinds, living in harmony and peace. A city with free ports that hummed with commerce and creativity. And if there had to be city walls, the walls had doors, and the doors were open to anyone with the will and the heart to get here." Unquote. And then he said something else that we need to remember, because when we teach our children that some of us are better than others, when we teach them only the ugly parts of our history and leave out the noble parts, 
the parts that made us a light to the world. Our children are far poorer for it. Reagan once said this, We've got to teach history based not on what's in fashion, but what's important. And here's another thought. The year 1619 was the year the first slave ship arrived in America. And that is what the 1619 Project wants us to think of as the year of America's true founding. So while 1619 is a painful year for black Americans and defines the beginnings of their American experience, Newt Gingrich urged us to look at this from a different perspective. He said, ultimately, it is the landing of the Mayflower, far more than the landing of the first slave ship, that has defined America. While the 1619 landing of the first slaves defines the black experience in America, 1620 landing of the pilgrims at Plymouth Rock defines the entire American experience. And that's significant. The history of slavery in this country is a blot on our heritage, but the pendulum of history is swinging too far to the left as black Americans seek to hurl their vengeance onto an entire race of people because some white people were hurtful to their well-being over the years. And it's true, they were hurt badly. And it's a hurt that is difficult, if not impossible, to forget. But the way to repair the damage is not to turn their anger and the desire for revenge on an entire race of people, repeating the crimes of the past by inflicting pain and damage on their perceived enemies. A far better way to heal the pain, in my humble view, is to reach out and find a way to mend our fences together. It doesn't always work. Hate is corrosive and hard to heal, but it sure is worth trying to make life better for everyone. Now, the big story this week is clearly the impeachment trial of former President Donald J. Trump, and it's a very big deal. Not only is Trump the first president to be impeached twice, America has never seen such a spectacle as the Democrats are presenting as though it were a legitimate exercise in government, which it most definitely is not. On Tuesday, after presentations by both sides, the U.S. Senate voted that the impeachment trial of Donald Trump was constitutional. There are a lot of people, some very smart people, who would disagree with that. Constitutional law is complicated, and this is a complicated story, as the Democrats made certain we would all understand. They reference nearly every impeachment in the history of the United States, including and emphasizing impeachments of people who had resigned before they were impeached. That was puzzling because Donald Trump certainly did not resign. That wasn't the case with him. He did not even concede the election because he was certain, and many of us are, that the election was won by Joe Biden through fraud and illegal activities perpetrated by the Democrats on a wholesale level. 
So Trump remained in office until noon on January 20th, when he gracefully and quietly retired from the presidency. And now the Senate is discussing whether or not Trump should be impeached for the riot that took place at the Capitol on January 6th. That was the day that the joint session of Congress was to discuss the outcome of the Electoral College. There were some Republicans who were planning to exercise their constitutional right to challenge those votes. But before that could happen, the riot broke out and the Capitol was breached. Now here's the controversy. President Trump was in Washington at a rally that was taking place at the Ellipse, which is just behind the White House. There were hundreds of thousands of people there to hear him. The Democrats are insisting that the words he spoke at the Ellipse that day were the inspiration for the riots that took place at the Capitol that day. They said he was responsible. But it didn't happen that way. It couldn't have. It wasn't possible. And here's why. You know, Daniel Patrick Moynihan, he was a U.S. Senator and advisor to presidents. He once said, quote, you are entitled to your opinion, but you are not entitled to your own facts. The so-called facts that the Democrats are presenting when they are blaming Trump for inflaming and inciting what they call an insurrection, their facts are made up. Here is what really happened and why it could not have happened the way the Democrats are saying it happened, which is their whole justification for the current insanity of impeaching President Trump for the second time. Here are the facts, the real facts, and they are verifiable. You decide. This timeline was compiled by Rahim Kassam, and it was presented on the Greg Kelly Show on Newsmax TV on Tuesday, February 10th. Here it comes. At exactly 12 noon on Tuesday, January 6th, President Trump began speaking to the crowd at the Ellipse. It was a huge crowd, some say as many as half a million people. And the president spoke for exactly one hour and 11 minutes. After he finished speaking, he took applause, which was considerable, as you might imagine, and he left the stage at 1.15 p.m. Now, meanwhile, at the Capitol, demonstrators arrived there at 12.40, while the president was still speaking at the Ellipse. The first officers at the Capitol were attacked at 1 p.m. while the president was still speaking. And at 1.09, former U.S. Capitol Police Chief Stephen Sund, who resigned after this event, he formally requested the assistance of the National Guard. Trump was still speaking. And at this point, the activity was still outside the Capitol building. Then at 1.40, the Capitol was breached by a mob of people who had been demonstrating outside. Now, understand this. The ellipse is approximately two miles from the Capitol. And since the roads were close to traffic, the only way to get there would be to walk. Now, on a good day, that would be roughly a 45-minute walk at the leisurely pace of three miles an hour. But in that crowd, the pace would likely be much, much slower. 
The point is that no one who was listening to Trump's speech at the ellipse, that speech that lasted until 1-11, they would not have been able to get to the Capitol in time to participate in the riot. The riot started at 1.40. So it was half an hour between the end of Trump's speech and the beginning of the riot. Even if they would have been able to leave the ellipse immediately, it still would have been impossible to get to the Capitol in time before the riot began. If you've ever been in a large crowd and tried to leave in a hurry, you'll know exactly what I'm talking about. It just doesn't work that way. So you say, okay, but what about live streaming? People could have been listening to the speech that Trump was giving on their phones, even if they were outside the Capitol, two miles away. But you see, forget live streaming, because the cell phone circuits that day in Washington were so overloaded that calling in or out was basically impossible. Forget live streaming. A simple cell phone call was out of the question. So here are the facts about that day. The people who attended the Trump rally were two miles away from the Capitol and couldn't have gotten there much before 2.30 p.m., if that. They therefore could not have been at the Capitol when the riot broke out at 1.40, so they could not have participated in it. Two, the people who were there at the Capitol could not have had cell phone service and therefore could not have heard Trump's speech. Therefore, they couldn't have been incited by it. And three, when the people at the Capitol nearest the building began to be unruly, Trump was still speaking. And here's another fact. Intelligence is now coming out that shows that the so-called insurrection was planned weeks before it happened. Someone even planted pipe bombs in D.C. the night before the riot. And the best information, the best intelligence so far, suggests that it was planned by Antifa and others on the left. It was a mixed crowd that stormed the Capitol on January 6th. Some who entered the building were Trump supporters who were angry at the lost election. Some were Antifa terrorists intent on destroying and doing harm. And some were just sucked up into the mob of people as they pushed forward into the Capitol building. There's still a lot we don't know about how this all happened and how it played out. But one thing is sure, President Trump did not incite a riot. Had the people at the Capitol heard the speech, they would have heard the president urge them to go to the Capitol peacefully and patriotically. So when the Democrats put words into the president's mouth, when they accuse him of inciting insurrection, when they show a video of his speech cherry-picked and leaving out the key parts in order to make their point, they are lying, and they know it. But the greater good for them is to destroy the man they hate so much and keep him from running for office. And by the way, this is the important point. Keep him from running for office again in 2024 because they know that if he runs and if they are unsuccessful in sabotaging that election, that he will win. He will win again. Their dirty tricks have been discovered and they cannot afford to let him run for president again. 
The Democrats are in panic mode. They need to destroy Donald Trump at all costs. But it seems likely that the Democrats will be unable to convict Trump of inciting the mob to insurrection. There's too much evidence to the contrary, and they don't have the votes. Still, they will make every effort to succeed. They will continue to lie, to exaggerate, even to perjure themselves, because they seem to believe that they are invulnerable so long as they can destroy him. Now, I need to take another short break, but there is more to the story, and I'm going to tell as much of it as I can. So stay right where you are, and I'll be right back. My fellow Americans, our mission here at AmericaOutloud.com is clear. We're here to defend our founding values and principles at a moment when they are under unprecedented assault. And to cover the news objectively and offer intelligent commentary on the challenges we face as a nation. You can tune in and join our family of listeners 24-7 on this vital crusade. Our apps are on Apple, Android, or Alexa. Find us on iHeartRadio or our world-class media player. It is a fight for the soul of humanity. America Out Loud Talk Radio is the voice of liberty and justice for all. Think back to the last time you felt healthy and energized. The best times of our lives occur when we're at the peak of our health, sleeping better, full of energy and focus. We know that fades with age, and you might be feeling the effects of aging as low energy and poor sleep. But it doesn't have to be that way. There haven't been any nutrition systems designed to rejuvenate our bodies as we get older until now. Healthy Cell Pro is the only multinutrient system that impacts the building block of your body, the cell. Created by anti-aging expert and Nobel Prize nominee, Dr. Vincent Giampapa. Award-winning Healthy Cell Pro cuts through the complexity of nutrition supplements by simply giving you the purest ingredients, filling dietary gaps to nourish your cells and enhance your quality of life for optimal performance. Visit HealthyCell.com and use code OUTLOUD for an exclusive discount or call 844-869-9958. Just before the break, I said that the Democrats are scared. They're afraid of Donald Trump. Given half a chance, they know that he will destroy their political engine that keeps them powerful and wealthy. And they seem to believe that the only way to keep him from challenging them, from breaking down their corrupt fiefdoms, is to destroy him completely. So from the time that he first announced his run for president in 2016, they have been trying to destroy him. Because he's honest. He said up front, from the beginning, that he aimed to drain the swamp. And they are the swamp creatures that he wanted to destroy. They're also scared because at some level, they recognize that they're not as invulnerable as they want to think they are. So destroying Donald Trump comes first, before anything else on the agenda, before the pandemic, the vaccines, the stimulus bill, and most certainly before the American people. The events of next week 
the impeachment trial will be historic one way or another. Those of us who have supported Donald Trump are exasperated at how little has been accomplished to stem this onslaught of bitter, angry, greedy people against the man who has done so much for this country and how little appreciated he is for all his efforts on behalf of the American people. Which brings me to another subject. What will Donald Trump do next? At the beginning, there were rumors that he would start another political party, the Patriot Party. I thought it was a good idea. Donald Trump doesn't listen to the Friedman Report, and I'm sure he doesn't listen to me. I doubt he even knows that I'm alive. But like so many of his supporters, I believe in him and what he is capable of doing. And here's why I think starting a new party is a good idea. First, the Republican Party is old and tired and too comfortable. Too many Republicans are willing to give in to the corruption of Washington and vote on behalf of their own political interests instead of voting with their conscience and on behalf of their constituents. There are more rhinos in Washington, I'm afraid, than true and honest Republicans. It's time to shake things up. But then there is history. I know Ross Perot tried it and failed. He had started off his career as an IBM salesman, and he was brilliant. According to legend, he filled his yearly quota of sales in his first two weeks on the job. And when he ran for president in 1992, when he ran against Republican George H. W. Bush and Bill Clinton, he gave it his all, but it wasn't enough. He won only 7% of the popular vote, and he got no electoral college votes at all. He ran again in 1996, but he still only got 8% of the votes. In both cases, the Democrat Bill Clinton won. Maybe Ross Perot had some satisfaction in knowing that he had upset the balance and changed the dynamics of the race. I'm not sure it was enough, but it didn't change the country. But long before Ross Perot ran for president on a third-party ticket, Abraham Lincoln tried it in a brand-new party, the Republican Party. And not only did he succeed, he then went on to save the country. Donald Trump is in a very good place to succeed. He has a following unlike any in the history of this country, and he is the man we need at the helm more than ever. At least 74 million people voted for him in 2020 and who will vote for him again in 2024. They'll be there for him no matter what party he runs for. And he will make the history books. This is an opportunity of a lifetime. And I hope he considers it seriously, even if he doesn't know my name. You know what really bothers me? I do a lot of research before I tape my show, and I've been reading a lot of articles about the current political situation. The left-wing media is busy as ever, placing the blame for the riot on January 6th, and even the impeachment on what they call, quote, baseless claims of voter fraud. And this phrase, baseless claims, is repeated in nearly all the left-wing media in any article about the 2020 election. The Tampa Bay Times, for example, ran an article on February 3rd 
about Representative Marjorie Taylor Greene, Republican of Georgia, who was recently stripped of her committee appointments for comments that she made several years ago. They wrote that she, quote, was one of the 147 Republicans who voted in favor of objections to the results of the presidential election in early January and has falsely claimed, that's the phrase that keeps repeating itself, falsely claimed that there was widespread voter fraud, unquote. Well, yes, there was widespread voter fraud. Where have you been? And hundreds of sworn affidavits by eyewitnesses and domain experts who saw the fraud firsthand. And here's another quote from the Tampa Bay Times article, same article. Quote, Twitter temporarily banned Green for violating its misinformation policy after she floated, ready, more baseless claims about voter fraud in Georgia. That's because there is no credible evidence that fraud affected the outcome of the election. Still, Green's false voter fraud narrative found a home on friendly TV networks like Newsmax and One America News, unquote. Well, they repeated that false claim three times in one paragraph. False claim. Well, it's not a false claim, folks. You know it. I know it. A lot of people know it. But the Democrats are doing everything they can to subvert it. So they spread lies by stating unequivocally that no fraud existed, and then they implicate the opposition networks in their insistence about baseless claims. Networks whose political philosophy about free speech and fair reporting runs counter to their own. Well, what a surprise. Someone once said, if the words don't add up, it's probably because truth wasn't included in the equation. Well, the Democrats' words don't add up. The lies about the president keep coming. The video that they showed at the impeachment trial was edited to make their point, but it erased the president's point, making him sound as though it was encouraging people to riot. On Wednesday, Congressman Jamie Raskin, the lead House manager, Democrat, of course, said this, quote, The evidence will show you that ex-President Trump was no innocent bystander. It will show that Donald Trump surrendered his role as commander-in-chief and became insider-in-chief. It was cute, <laughs> insider-in-chief, but it was a lie. Donald Trump's message on January 6th at the rally was let your voices be heard peacefully. And he said in his speech, quote, we fight like hell, and if you don't fight like hell, you're not going to have a country anymore, unquote. And he called on his supporters to peacefully and patriotically make their voices heard. That's not inciting violence. Quite the opposite. I'll tell you what inciting violence is. How about Congressman Maxine Waters from California when she said, if you see anyone from that cabinet, she's talking about Trump's cabinet, in a restaurant, in a department store, at a gasoline station, you get out and you create a crowd and you push back on them and you tell them they're not welcome anymore, anywhere, unquote. That's incitement. 
but she just got reelected for the umpteenth time, and she's still in Congress, passing judgment on others. The entire impeachment is unconstitutional by any standard, even though the Senate voted that it was constitutional anyway. There's a growing body of evidence in criminal complaints and affidavits that the Capitol breach had been pre-planned. And if that's the case, how in the world could the president have incited them on January 6th? I guess it doesn't really have to make sense when it's every kind of crazy. So here we are. We have one more kangaroo court. But why are the Democrats doing this when there are so many urgent issues in America today? Well, here's one theory. The Capitol riot is being used in a political power play to establish a one-party rule in the Congress. There's another question, and it's a serious one. Is this impeachment really a planned distraction to divert America's attention from what is really going on in the Biden presidency? On the day of the riot, there were reports that buses of Antifa agitators were brought into Washington for the very purpose of making a disturbance and that they were paid for by the Democrats. This is still in the category of unsubstantiated intelligence, but it certainly raises questions, doesn't it? One of the great fears for the people on the right was the concern that the Biden administration would begin undoing the advances that Trump made in the economy and in international relations and in so many areas where the welfare of Americans and the nation would be negatively impacted if he hadn't done them. I've often quoted George Santayana, who said, those who do not learn from history are destined to repeat it. And the history that we never want to repeat is one that seems all too likely to be in our future. Is history repeating itself now? The Democrats compared the January 6th riots in the Capitol to the Reichstag fire in 1933 in Germany. That fire was an arson attack on the Reichstag building, which was where the German parliament met in Berlin, and it happened on February 27, 1933 exactly four weeks after Hitler was sworn in as Chancellor of Germany. The Nazis used the Reichstag fire as an excuse to seize control and begin their purge of their political opponents. They started with the communists and then proceeded to cancel, and literally cancel, everyone who criticized them or who got in their way. And because Hitler didn't like the Jews, the Nazis murdered six million of them. The Nazis weren't alone. The Russian Bolsheviks and the Chinese communists also used periods of national emergencies to cement their own rise to power, often at the expense of their own people, the people they were supposed to be governing. In Germany, on the next day after the fire, the government suspended the right of assembly, freedom of speech, freedom of the press, and it allowed the government to confiscate private property. It did a lot more, but you get the picture. So now I ask again, are we repeating history? What about the mountain of executive orders that Joe Biden has signed in his first few weeks in office 
As a colleague of mine said, quote, someone needs to remind Joe Biden that he is not the king of America, but rather the president of the United States. In his first week in office, Biden has become drunk with power and has wielded his executive order pen like a king wields his scepter, unquote. What's worse, his pen has made America's borders less secure, opened the floodgates to illegal immigrants without any provisions for medical evaluations or COVID-19 testing, made us more dependent on foreign energy, and killed thousands of jobs with a stroke of his pen, and so much more. Where will this end? If we don't learn from history, we are destined to repeat it. And now, a bulletin from the World Health Organization. Ta-da! Trumpets. The COVID-19 pandemic did not originate in a laboratory. Oh no, it came from an animal. That's what Xi Jinping wants the world to think, and so that is what WHO says. They took a quick trip to Wuhan, investigated a laboratory that was created to study some of the nastiest viruses in the world, including coronaviruses, and was completely sanitized after the escape of the virus to remove all traces in the lab after the virus went worldwide. It took a year for the Chinese to finally agree to have a team come into Wuhan and investigate the source of the virus. And we still don't know any more than we did before. There were reports coming from Wuhan, leaked from Wuhan, that the lab was being thoroughly cleansed to remove all traces of the bioweapons research. Many other parts of the story don't fit either. The CCP's numbers relating to the infection rate in China and the number of people who have died from the virus appear to be greatly minimized. And now we have this report from the World Health Organization that after only a very short visit to China to, quote, investigate the source of the virus, they have discovered that the virus didn't come from the laboratory at all, but came from another animal which they decided was the pangolin which is, I think, in the armadillo family. Anyway, so now they say that the virus originated in bats, which it did, by the way. We've known that all along. But they say that the bats passed it on to another animal, which then passed it on to humans, which I don't believe at all, so I'm not even going to discuss it. Here is something else to be concerned about, because... The president, President Joe Biden, has said that he will re-engage with WHO, which had been canceled by Trump because of the way it bungled the entire pandemic information and misinformation to the world about the danger of the virus and the stages of its spread. They didn't even call it a pandemic until mid-March after it had spread all around the globe. Nothing like stating the obvious when so many millions of lives are at stake. Well, this is a long story and it's not over yet because it's very clear that the World Health Organization is hiding the Chinese secrets about the virus. And any hope that we ever had to verify the source of the virus are long gone in the CCP's unwillingness to share the real story. Eventually, our own scientists will figure it out. But in the meantime, 
Our government seems intent on bungling our way back into the whirlpool of UN corruption. History repeating itself again. And in the meantime, over a hundred million people have been infected and more than two million people have died from this virus. That's a very high cost to pay for Chinese malfeasance and secrecy and, frankly, lack of concern for the rest of the world. Well, we've reached the end of another hour, my friends. Boy, did that go fast. Thank you for sharing it with me. You've been listening to the news magazine on the America Out Loud Network. I'm Alana Friedman, and this has been The Friedman Report.